Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show offering unique insights and in-depth analysis featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs. I've got a brisk 30 minutes on the latest in South African and global news. We're live and then up as a podcast. We'll bring you insightful interviews with key business and political figures, prominent newsmakers and leading experts, all in a concise, informative update. It's Wednesday, the 14th of February. Coming up on the program, a new risk report points to increasing pre-election social unrest. How next week's budget can set a more positive investor tone. Can government afford a new junior doctor hiring policy? And how Sona and the speech thereof failed on the country's green energy front. Let's begin with this. And South Africa is likely to see increased social unrest and violence in coming months. The German financial service provider Allianz has released its first country risk atlas. With me now is Luca Moneta, who is senior economist for Africa and Middle East at Allianz. And Luca, firstly, then, this is a worrying report. How has South Africa's economic resilience, as you point out, contrasted with the underlying social tensions that, as you're suggesting, could lead to increased unrest and violence. And we have observed over the past 18 months the, the country's ability, which I would even call surprising, to cope with the difficulties related firstly to road shedding and then to logistics, all in a context of rather high imported and structural inflation, eating especially families and SMEs. We know these difficulties are spread differently and asymmetrically, I'd say, across the social fabric. And we imagine that many of these knots will come to a head this year. All things considered, though, the ability of households and businesses to get by so far, even at a cost, and greater fiscal strength than a year and a year and a half ago are elements that make it possible in our view to look at the medium and long-term outlook relatively optimistically. That's good news, but I would imagine that economic resilience also has a shelf life, is that we must surely be at some kind of breaking point now. Yeah, sure. I mean, the the contrasts we we witness are evident and may actually exacerbate tensions. For instance, while overseas visitors increased by 47% year on year in 2023 and tourist destinations, starting with hotels, are the best equipped and perhaps even protected to to deal with uh, with load shedding and their consequences, the situation in popular areas, street safety in general, petty crime and violence as a whole are the most affected. So this obviously increases the gaps and does not help to lower fences or increase the credibility of institutions that are still relatively young compared to similar countries. Luca, let's pick up on load shedding if we can. In in what ways has this concept, which you identify as the biggest risk to South Africa in this risk barometer, exacerbated and is exacerbating social tensions and the potential for unrest in spite of the positive economic uh, performance that you've alluded to? Uh, This remains front and center uh, our biggest problem, does it not? 
Yeah, for sure. This has definitely an impact on uh, the, the life of families and it definitely polarizes the, the whole environment because, again, the impact of load shedding has been clearly asymmetric and uh, there, there will be some kind of, say, long-term consequence for that, particularly if we look also at the, the kind of measure that have been undertaken to, say, mitigate security risks. I'm referring, for instance, to electronic payments and so on. So these are the aspects that even small businesses are really reliant on and that are definitely uh, put at risk under the, the current situation. So it's some kind of, uh, say, improvement in that aspect is definitely needed. You talk about an expected rise in social unrest and violence during this election period and the impact on political stability and economic prospects. That's a, a gloomy assessment that you're making. What leads you to that, uh, to that conclusion? Well, for now, I'd say that our approach is still, again, relatively optimistic, even though some caution is required. So we expect 2024 to be a year divided into two distinct chapters. The economic performance, for instance, in the first half of the year will be constrained by relatively high interest rates, still fragile energy supply and elevated costs for transport. Some pre-election uncertainty, of course, and the emergence of new geopolitical flashpoints. The second half of the year will benefit from monetary easing and a slight improvement in electricity and logistics, as well as likely increase in political certainty. So depending, of course, on the, on, the, on the precise outcome of the elections. You also talk about growing disputes between political elites and this having an effect on social unrest. What are you trying to say in that respect? This is probably one of the, the most critical and, and sensitive, I'd say, aspect of our analysis. So uh, this is the short answer is, yes, the pressures will continue to, to limit the country's productive capacity and even dialogue between institutions will remain somewhat, say, tricky. That will also affect uh, the exit from poverty for, for many and do not help definitely close the gaps. So on the other side, I'd say that a certain degree of dialectics is definitely healthy and helps diffuse violence. So we've looked at the political side of the equation. You also express concern about poor ranking in public debt sustainability. That's also a risk that you're saying could lead to social tension, particularly in the context of short-term revenue absorption for debt repayment and elevated sovereign bond yields. That, that, that is a concern, is it not? Because that has a widespread impact. For sure, for sure. That limits dramatically uh, the size of, uh, say, social assistance that the government is able to to produce, and uh, so South Africa, for instance, ranks in the worst quintile uh, in our public debt sustainability risk assessment as of 2023, and this is due to a considerable short-term absorption, as you said, of revenues to to repay interest on that, and an increase in sovereign bond yields. The primary balance in 2024 is forecast to remain within minus 1% of GDP based on our analysis with salary increases and inflation leading to larger tax inflows. On the other side, interest expenditure on debt will still account for 4.55% of GDP. Public debt is expected to stabilize at a little more than 70% of GDP, including government guarantees on state-owned enterprises. But it has a kind of lengthy amortization profile on average, which is about 12 years, which is a positive. International reserves also remain at around 15% of GDP. They do cover for around six months of imports, 
so double the level commonly seen as critical for emerging markets, which all in all, well, some flexibility to meet mounting social demands and moderately supporting SOEs in case of need is therefore, I'd say, likely, thanks to the fact that external vulnerabilities have also reduced, I mean, uh, as opposed to many other countries on the continent. And now foreign debt to GDP is at less than 40%, down from 56% in 2020. And you're also concerned about the state's limited ability to conduct and, I guess, implement effective policy. Um, That is also an issue that has seemingly got worse over the past couple of years. For sure. I mean, uh, policy, credibility, and, uh, well, what we are all expecting in the sense of the outcome of the elections and probably increased, say, level of negotiations and when it comes to expropriation of land, these kind of risks are, of course, something that will remain in the air for some time. So these are also part of the, say, the picture, the, the kind of unknowns that we still have for, for 2024. I'm going to leave it there. Luca Moneta, Senior Economist for Africa and uh, the Middle East at Alliance. Uh, I do appreciate the assessment. Thank you for joining me. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Well, in a similar vein and ahead of next week's budget, I'd like you to listen to this comment. The heightened country risk premium for South African government bonds, coupled with the retreat of overseas marginal investors, has escalated the funding costs for the National Treasury despite efforts at fiscal tightening. The comment goes on to say, and while government's priority is likely to remain on fiscal consolidation through the medium-term expenditure framework period, the threat, and this is the important stuff, the threat of a fiscal cliff with a persistent rise in debt service costs lingers unless there is an upturn in the growth trend. That uh, assessment from Frank Blackmore, lead economist at KPMG South Africa. He's with me now on MoneyWeb at Midday. Frank, how do you believe the budget can be leveraged then to enhance investor confidence in South Africa, given that assessment I've just read out? Well, I think the most important point is return just to credibility of that budget. What we've seen over the last 10 years is basically that the growth of expenditures outpaced, uh, obviously, the, the revenue side, which has meant we have made a sort of persistent bug budget deficits, leading to increased public debt. Um, and the problem has been uh, a lot of this has been without re- reciprocal increase in public services. And I think that was the point that irritated a lot of people. And this has been acknowledged by 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 the Department of Finance. It's in their um, budget report as well. So the way to, to counteract this would be action and sort of disciplined adherence to a budget and not just statements of intent that are most likely broken long before the medium-term budget policy statement, as, as has been the case over the past few years, will help to create that uh, fiscal basis uh, that will hopefully lead to people believing in the budget again, attracting investment and, and that leading on to economic growth. But uh, all, all well and good, but adherence to budget in an election year is always difficult, isn't it? Promises are bandied about uh, with, with, with gay abandon. <laughs> yes, uh, that, that, is, that is obviously correct. And, and we've heard that, you know, over, as, as years go by, without economic growth and without that reciprocity in growing the economic base and pulling more people into the tax sort of net, 
uh, it means there are a growing number of, of demands for um, what is a, a still a limited uh, re revenue side of the budget. And um, from the president's SONA the other day, we had a number of areas that he sort of mentioned um, that might lead to ex additional expenditures in this year's budget, uh, apart from the ones we already know about, such as in increases in the usual um, service delivery uh, side of the economy, as well as your struggling SOEs, etc., that will demand uh, the their cut of, of the revenue share. So you talk about the urgent need for action then. Are there specific measures that government, you believe, should be prioritizing uh, next week in order to mitigate the risk of this fiscal cliff that you refer to? I think the most important here is, I mean, it's stated and acknowledged by government as well, taking care of two main expenditure items, the public wage bill and obviously the debt service costs. Both of these items, we haven't seen much discipline around over the past, um, and they are the two that are likely to eat into what revenue is available for service delivery. Back of an envelope calculation, if you just take debt service cost, public wages, and, national, and, and social grants, we're consuming more than two-thirds of the budget on those three items, which means your service delivery components, your capital expenditure components, increasing the productive base of the economy have to survive on less than a third of the budget. And if we want to turn this uh, economic condition of ours around, create a bit of growth, more of that money will have to go into the productive base. In other words, capital expenditure, infrastructure and the like. Um, and the only way to do that will be to have a lot of discipline around both the debt service costs, in other words, the borrowing, uh, that we'll see in government, as well as that public wage. And there's absolutely no way that he's going to tamper with the wage bill again in an election cycle. Um, look, there will be a moderate increase, again, uh, penciled in for public sector wages. Whether they stick to it or not, we will see around June, July of this year. Frank, what are you? where is your head as far as tax increases are concerned? Inevitable, what manoeuvrability does he have? I think there's not much space again, but uh, it's a similar story that we've mentioned for at least the post sort of COVID uh, period. So where will we get the money from? There will be some spending revisions, moving money from one place to another within the current budget, small increases in taxes, things like bracket creep, sin taxes, fuel taxes. I expect all of those to increase, but probably less so on the personal income tax side given the cost of living crisis that a lot of South Africans are going through at the moment, and, and obviously not on, I don't think, on the company side either. So the main source of funding will probably be from increased borrowing. And as the minister is rummaging about in that uh, empty drawer, he's also going to have to find some way of advancing money for NHI. Indeed. So that was one of the issues that came up in the in the SONA with the imminent signing of the National um, Health Insurance Bill. And although we have been told that the implementation would be incremental, there will no doubt be additional funding requirements associated with the implementation, irrespective of the extent thereof for National Health Insurance Office or whatever it may be within government. That will have to start up and that will require additional funding um, in this year's budget.
I'm going to leave it there. So much to play for, and we'll hear about that next week. Uh, Frank Blackmore, lead economist at KPMG South Africa. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. Well, the Health Minister, Joe Patla, has announced government is to hire hundreds of unemployed doctors who've completed their community service uh, training. The Minister of Finance, uh, he says, is going to give more details when he tables the budget in Parliament next week, Wednesday. So is this feasible, this concept of hiring? Uh, where, the risk, where are the risks? Where are the priorities? Joining me now is Dr. Mvuisi Mzukwa, who is the chairperson of the South African Medical Association. Dr. Mzukwa, welcome to you. So how feasible do you find government's plan, given previous concerning statements about a lack of funds? Well, we just hope as the South African Medical Association that the minister was not just making a political statement or you know some sort of electioneering we we hope it was a genuine a statement because we know those are young people who are looking for jobs but also we have known in the past that there are statements like this that have been pronounced but they never came to fruition but as the south african medical association we are going to follow up on those statements to make sure that uh, the minister materializes what he, he, he promised to the nation Doctor, what do you see as the potential risks, financial or other, and the difficulties then associated with this hiring plan? And if they are, how would you suggest that they are mitigated? Well, I do think that, one, we have to uh, make sure that, uh, you know, the money that is given out by Treasury is used efficiently in, by the Department of Health. Because you, you've noted that uh, in the past, money has been taken back to Treasury because there was underspending in the provinces. So that's one thing. I think that needs to be, provinces would need to be capacitated in, to, in terms of using monies efficiently. The other thing is, I don't think we should only be looking at the what is happening now in the Department of Health because we don't believe that this is sustainable. We might need to look at the private sector as well, you know, in terms of making this sustainable in terms of uh, populating those uh, primary health sectors in the communities. Otherwise, if we depend on the state, this might not be sustainable looking at the numbers that we are getting out of uh, medical schools each year. What are your concerns about sustainability? Is it capacity, management or money? It is a combination of factors, Jeremy, because if you look at the reports by the health ombuds and many other institutions that they've pronounced on the challenges that we have in the healthcare system, they've mentioned governance and leadership and governance as a challenge number one. But the other thing is that we had problems with catered deployment, where you find that we we put uh, uh, people that are not capable of leading in those institutions. So finances are just one part of it, but the major part is that we've been having these problems, but also the inefficiencies that I mentioned earlier and the corruption that is in the system. So those needs to be factored in when we are trying to overhaul the healthcare system. So let's talk a little bit about the provincial side of the dynamic, and it's important then in order for maximum capacitation to be affected. So how can these departments integrate the new hires into their systems by the target date and make sure that they are up and running and delivering a service? 
I think the most important part with the provinces is planning. We've noted, Jeremy, that there's poor planning in the system. If you look, for example, what has been happening in the provinces, taking students to uh, other countries abroad and dumping them there because they cannot sustain, you know, financially. So I, I do think things like those need to be corrected. Uh, secondly, it can be that when a country is planning, there is fragmentation of that plan. Provinces are doing their own thing. National government is doing their own thing. It's one system. We need to be attending to the Department of Health. That includes the private sector as well. Where there is healthcare de- delivery, uh, I think all government should be cognizant of those areas. So, But what needs to, to happen now is that provinces must capacitate their leadership and governance. They must make sure that uh, uh, resources are available, especially in the rural areas, and make sure that those uh, posts that are out there are populated. How do you make sure that the young doctors who are potentially placed in these areas are sufficiently motivated and committed? It's always important to, first of all, look at the work environment. The work environment, as you know, uh, we've got serious uh, challenges like broken equipment, poor resourcing. These issues, they are important when you are to support the work of healthcare workers because they can't deliver quality health services when actually they don't have these uh, support structures, supporting technologies and stuff like that. So you do need to make sure that x-rays are working, MRIs are working, but also there's uh, enough security in those areas. But the well-being of healthcare workers also is taken into consideration. These are not robots. These are human beings. They need to be taken good care of. Those employee assistance programs, they need to be revived so that uh, if there are any challenges mentally, uh, those uh, uh, young doctors can be assisted and also making sure that they progress in their careers. Notwithstanding your concerns, would I be correct in saying that there is the possibility that if these doctors are optimally placed, it should have a positive impact on the overall quality and accessibility of healthcare services? There is no doubt, Jeremy, because if you look at the report that came from the uh, World Health Organization, it tells us that... um, 90% of the universal health coverage uh, interventions happen at a primary health level. So if you populate those areas, it means already you are advancing the goal of universal health coverage. So if you get those doctors to populate those areas, I am sure that uh, it would be a very good planning, uh, considering that plan is implemented. If it's not implemented, it's just a promise that is not helpful not only to the doctors, but also to the, the, the population at large. You've raised a number of concerns about this decision. Do you have any plans to raise this with the health minister? Yes, we've already had one meeting that we had with the department. There will be a follow-up meeting where we want to especially engage the minister on the plans you know, regarding these healthcare workers that he promised to place, but also many other issues that we want to raise with the minister, especially looking at the deterioration of healthcare infrastructure and many other things that are affecting the healthcare system. As the South African Medical Association, this week uh, from Thursday until uh, Saturday, we're having a conference that looks at the strengthening 
of the healthcare system in South Africa. I'm going to leave it there. Thank you very much indeed, Dr. Mvuisi Mzukwa from the South African no. Medical Association. He is the chairperson. I'm Simon Brown, host of MoneyWeb Now. Join me every weekday morning at 6.30 on the MoneyWeb website or the app to kickstart your morning with the most up-to-date business, economic and investing news. I ask CEOs about results, speak to analysts on their favorite stocks and get to understand the inner workings of the economy. Podcast published just after 7. MoneyWeb Now with me, Simon Brown, to start your day informed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Now, while promises to end load shedding and drive a green energy transition may sound promising, the measures outlined in this year's State of the Nation address lack substance, says Nick Roche, who is Chief Product Officer at tech and power company Rubicon. As we continue to battle the crisis, what then should the President have said? And Nick Roche, what elements, in your opinion, then are missing from the President's outline? I think that the president used sort of and reused certain things. So, for example, talking about the 14,000 kilometers of, of network infrastructure is actually old news. And what I felt was that a lot of the things that he mentioned were they lacked substance. You know, there wasn't uh, any sort of plan behind it. So he said things about the transition to green energy. But what about it? What are we doing about it? What's the plan? How are we activating that? You know what's the roadmap look like it was very it felt it felt very much like sort of ticking boxes but not actually putting a plan in place that is clear that everybody can follow that these are the things we're going to do the private sector can participate in these three places you know do you think this raises real questions about government's commitment to green energy sure it's a good question i don't say that there is no green energy in the government's actions so for example the the REIPP, you know, the Renewable Energy Independent Power Producer Program, has been going on for years and work has been done. But I think that what we need is to move into a top gear type of thing, you know, where we are doing things actively and aggressively. So I can give you a, a concrete example. Mm. In the case of ESCOM, it's quite difficult in many cases to complete the process fully and completely to install distributed generation. And they would say, yes, there is a clear process, but I know from being inside the industry, it's very open-ended and it depends on where you are in the country, whether you get a positive response or not. You know, there's not this very simple, straightforward, clear process that enables people to put the hammer down. And things like that are going to hold us back. You know, we need top speed, which means no red tape, clear guidelines, and some form of encouragement, you know, so in other words, that could be buying excess energy, it could be, you know, a, a speedy turnaround, you know, all those kind of things I feel like they're missing. So, yes, there is some on the surface, but when you go below the surface, it's, it's far from enough. So if we had an optimum plan, and uh, we have been talking about this for a long time, at this point in early 2024, where should we be? Gosh, we should have a lot more energy being pushed into the grid than we we currently uh, are. You know, there's a couple of things that are coming together at the same time here. The first one is that we have this urgent need for green energy. Um, our, our grid is on average much dirtier than many others, just by virtue of the qual- quality of the coal we're burning and the amount of coal we're burning. Then the other thing that's coming uh, is the need to just have more energy of any type, you know, to bolster the grid for, for load shedding. 
And then there's a third thing that's now not very far around the corner, which is the e-mobility electric vehicle revolution. And it's well understood that that's going to put a massive additional demand on the grid. So not only are we running at perhaps a 20% deficit at the moment, you know, roughly stage four is is somewhere around 20% less energy than we need. Um, we've got this big looming thing around the corner. He, he mentioned in his speech that they're going to put their weight behind the local automotive uh, industry in, as far as manufacturing EVs is concerned. Very important, fully agree, must do it. But what about the energy to address that? So you're sitting in this place where you've got a dirty grid, a massive deficit, and there's a huge demand around the corner. That's very difficult to to fulfill or to improve or to fix if there isn't something happening at an incredible pace. And, and it's definitely not happening at an incredible pace. Mm. And part of that pace is also better private sector investment in transmission infrastructure. Are you confident that we have good enough, innovative enough investment models to attract uh, that cohort into the uh, into the entire mix. So in his speech, he said, he talked about this 14,000 kilometers, which which we all agree we need. And then he said something about, we, we're going to have innovative investment or, 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 or opportunities or something to that effect. But it's, a, it's what I'm talking about when I say there's no detail. What does that mean? How does that look? Who's it going to be available to, you know? From my perspective, until there's some more detail on that, it doesn't mean very much. How much weight should we be putting behind these special economic zones in the transition to green energy? Is enough work being done in that respect? That's a great question. I think the answer to that is we should be encouraging them. We do need the investment, but it's often a bigger picture conversation, you know, so the the SEZ follows behind all the other necessities for investment in these things, such as having a stable grid and power available for these factories to actually build the stuff that they need. It's a little bit kind of caught before the horse. You know, we've got basics at the moment that we need to address. So I don't discourage them at all. I think they're a great uh, thing. And, and we have historically seen they were effective. But if you look at the the special economic zones that have been developed, they, they're not like incredible economic bright spots. And I think the reason is more around, okay, well, what are the other things that these investors need before they get excited about uh, some kind of incentive? You know, they need stable power to, to, to run their factories before we do anything else, you know. So this speech in many ways was a bit of a setback as far as green energy is concerned. It's now up to government to try and rebuild public confidence. And that's going to take some work, as you've suggested. I think so. You know, we want to see action. You know, we, we don't want to hear lots of words. That's not government, that's just talking. We need government to really go into top gear. And the political will needs to be there. You know, the private sector is on fire. The private sector is excited. The private exe- uh, sector is ready to invest. There's capital, there's everything that you could need on the private sector side, but the government need to enable it. So I really think that the government, actually the ball is firmly in their court and the game is theirs to either win or lose. You know, if they put their best foot forward at this time, we can do things quickly. We really can. I know a lot of people in the industry who are really standing on the starting blocks and ready to rock and roll. They just need to fire the gun, you know. Nick Roche, thank you very much indeed.
And just before we go on our poll Tuesday, the Apex Court Cater deployment decision, I asked uh, if it's going to stop the practice. Is it a waste of time? Well, that was according to 45% of our respondents, and the damage is done already. That was according to uh, 47% of the online jury. Today, warnings have been sounded of increased pre-election social unrest. That was our lead story today. Um, I'd like your view on that. Likely, not at all, or plain scaremongering. Go to MoneyWeb on Twitter, also on our LinkedIn page. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays. We're then up as a podcast. Goodbye to you and thank you for listening. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.